It's Friday, June 8th, and this is The Daily Dive. NASA has made two major announcements about Mars. First, the Mars Curiosity rover has detected organic compounds in rock and soil samples that are three and a half billion years old. Secondly, they found that methane gas on Mars goes through seasonal changes. Ryan Mandelbaum, science reporter for Gizmodo, joins us to discuss these new Martian developments. The historic meeting between President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is only days away. The president considers himself well-prepared and says the meeting is about attitude and the willingness to get things done. Elena Treen, associate news editor and reporter for Axios, will join us for more on this much-anticipated meeting. Finally, we will talk about a psychopathic artificial intelligence named Norman. A team at MIT fed the AI a steady diet of data from a subreddit that had nothing but death and destruction, and now all it thinks about is murder. They showed Norman inkblot tests, and instead of seeing things like flowers and birds, he saw people being shot and electrocuted. Ryan Whitwam with ExtremeTech.com joins us to talk about the world's first psychopathic AI. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We found organic molecules in rocks from an ancient lake bed. Those organic molecules could have come from life. There are other sources of of making those molecules, including things that are non-biological in nature things like meteorites, or even rock processes. We can attribute geology all by itself without life to making organic molecules. Joining us now is Ryan Mandelbaum, science writer at Gizmodo. NASA had a uh, pretty interesting setup. They wanted to talk about some new discoveries that they had with the uh, Curiosity rover. What did they find out there on Mars? This was actually two discoveries grouped into one big announcement. Uh, The first discovery is that the Curiosity rover discovered 3.5 billion-year-old organic compounds in the mud of the crater that it's been exploring. Organic means that it's carbon-based, not that it's uh, related to life. And then the second is that it discovered a seasonal variation to the methane levels on the planet. So methane is a gas, and we often associate it here on Earth with things like cow farts. It doesn't have to be made by life, but uh, (laughs) they are seeing this seasonal level change of the methane on Mars, which is interesting. Okay, let's start with the first one then. Uh, The organic matter they found in these uh, 3.5 billion year old rocks. Uh, So the rover has been in this uh, gale crater, they call it. It's been there for six years, digging around, getting samples, heating them up and seeing what they're made of. And so why is this particularly important, these organic molecules that they found there? I would say that the the, the way that they found these these compounds was a confirmation that these rocks have been there on Mars, that these compounds have been there on Mars since the beginning, you know, since 3.5 billion years ago. And you may have heard some people think that Mars might have had water at some point in its past. So if Mars had both water and organic compounds on its surface really early on in its history, then that sort of gives these like tantalizing hints that maybe at one point it, it was a potentially habitable planet. Some scientists think that this crater, the Gale Crater, might have been a big lake at one point. So some water there, yeah, there could have been life some somewhere along the line. Definitely very interesting. And then the methane gas is also interesting because they say with the seasonal changes in the levels of methane, something needs to be producing it. Something needs to be uh, either giving off that methane so that these seasonal changes can even occur. Right. And so there's two different um, ideas that I've seen, but you know, it could, we don't know what it is yet, but perhaps there's some, you know, maybe there's microbes, like little 
bacteria or some sort of strange Martian organism that's living in the dirt that's producing this methane, or maybe there's some sort of water and volcanic activity that's producing the methane in the rocks that's causing these changes. But both of those would be interesting. I mean, if there was, first of all, I mean, if there were microbes on Mars, that would just blow our minds, right? That's life on Earth. Right, exactly. That would be the pay dirt right there, just in and of itself. I mean, even if there wasn't, even if this was volcanic activity, Mars has is, is long had this sort of perception that it's a dead planet, that it doesn't have tectonic plates and activity going on underneath its, you know, underneath its surface like Earth does. And, you know, if it has this strange activity going on, then that's a sign that Mars might be more active than we thought. So no matter what, there's some mysteries going on here. You spoke to a lot of experts for your article on Gizmodo, and you did ask a funny question to everybody. You asked each person, do you think there's life on Mars? What did they all say? (laughs) It's funny. I think everybody said pretty much the same thing, (laughs) which is maybe, maybe not. But really the consensus is that we need to keep looking. There's so many interesting things we're going to learn from this planet, no matter what is on it. I mean, one of my sources told me that we could learn more about Earth's ancient history by looking at Mars. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether there's life or not. What matters is that there's some really weird things going on in this planet and we got to look and see what's going on. Right. Uh, There's what's next for Mars itself. There's a couple of other different rovers that are going to be sent out to the planet to do more. Some of the same types of experimentations there. Sure. So I would keep your eyes open first for the InSight mission, which just launched. Uh, InSight is going to tell us a little bit more about what's going on beneath the planet's surface. I would also keep your eyes open for the ExoMars mission. That one is going to look also at um, the methane and some of the other chemicals that are on that planet. And then um, one of the ones a lot of people are really excited about is the Mars 2020 mission, which is going to be a, uh, a pretty badass rover that they're sending out there. So keep your eyes open for those three, because some of your answers might come from one of those missions. Excellent. This was not in any of the stories uh, related to uh, yesterday's announcements, but Pew Research uh, Center did a, a recent poll, and they asked a bunch of Americans, what should be NASA's top priorities? Chief among them, they said uh, they should monitor Earth's climate, They should monitor asteroids that could possibly hit the Earth way at the bottom of the list. Not to say that they weren't important, but at the bottom of the list was sending astronauts to Mars and to the moon. What's your thought process on any of that? I have a lot of thoughts on that, but I think my first is just why can't we do both? I mean, right, if you think about the government budget, we spend a lot of money on things like the military and technology that ultimately could be used for NASA to send things to Mars. So I don't see why we can't just do both first. Do you think that's high Uh, on uh, on your list of priorities? You'd want to get somebody out there? Honestly, to me, humans into Mars is not as exciting as like bettering life here on planet Earth. To me, there's still a lot of things we could do with just probes and landers for now. But I understand that, you know, we should get someone to Mars. But to me, I mean, I'm, I live on Earth, so my personal opinion is that we should probably be spending some time to make things better over here. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Uh, Ryan Mandelbaum, science writer at Gizmodo, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Oscar. There have been near daily briefings, including today. Uh, where we have been providing the president uh, all the information that he needs. And I am, I am very confident the president will be fully prepared when he meets with his North Korean counterpart. Joining us now is Elena Treen. 
She's an associate news editor and reporter for Axios. This historic North Korean summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un is only a few days away. It's getting pretty exciting, I think. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had a press briefing yesterday, still setting the stage. He said that Kim Jong-un has confirmed to him that he does have a willingness to denuclearize the ongoing problem. What everybody's been working on is nobody still knows exactly what that means. Right. Well, that's exactly the case. So what Secretary of State Mike Pompeo stated yesterday was that through his meetings when he went to North Korea, he was there twice in recent months, that the leader, Kim Jong-un, has indicated personally that he's prepared to denuclearize, which was interesting. We had expected that, you know, there would be this willingness It's not clear whether that's actually going to happen. Obviously, that is one of the main goals, if not the main goal, of this summit on Tuesday in Singapore. And you're exactly right with the strategy. So what we're seeing is that President Trump said yesterday as well when he was meeting with the Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe that he's very prepared, but it's really an attitude thing going into it. And sources have told me that there really is not an exact strategy for how to handle this. They don't really know what to expect, especially because North Korea is very much, you can't always trust what they're going to say. They may say one thing and end up doing another. So I think that the administration and especially aides prepping the president, as well as the secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, they're trying to go into this open-minded, but they are really pushing for this denuclearization. And it is interesting that Kim Jong-un has said he's prepared to denuclearize, but it's not clear that that's actually going to be the case. A lot of people have been speculating a lot about this. Is the president going to prepare? He said, as you mentioned, that he thinks he's very prepared already. It's all about the attitude, the willingness to get things done. So he's going to sit down with Kim Jong-un, and he says, you're going to know right away if he's going to want to get something done. It's kind of like meeting a date for the first time, and you know right away if there's going to be a future there or something. It's hard to imagine that he's not preparing. And he has his team. The news a few weeks ago was uh, Ambassador Sung Kim from the Philippines was on the scene trying to lay preparations for some type of negotiations. There's teams working on this. It's not like the president is going in and hashing out the deal alone, solo. No, he's not. He's definitely preparing very much for this. He's not looking at this. I mean, I will say in several other meetings and sources have told us who have been inside the rooms with some of these negotiations that the president does seem not prepared for a lot of them. But this is definitely a different case. I think that the White House and the intelligence officials, national security officials, and obviously foreign relations officials have been preparing him for this for some time, you know, prior to them thinking the summit was off and then it was back on again. They recognize that this is a massive deal and the president recognizes this is a massive deal. They sources have told me that the president may be coming off that he is very confident with what would happen, but behind closed doors, they recognize and he recognizes that there's a lot at stake here. And we've also seen his language change over time. So he always had this hard line, really strong type of language and rhetoric toward North Korea. And since the summit was called off and now that it's back on, they've kind of lowered expectations for what they're expecting. The president said yesterday during that press conference in the Rose Garden that he thinks that this meeting, if it's successful, will be the first of many. He's not expecting to walk out of this done deal, let's get him a noble, uh, peace negotiations <laughs> are done. He, he expects, right. and a lot of his aides are telling him this is going to be a lot longer of a oh, process well, yeah, than what I mean, seen in the past. It's a massive deal. Nobody expects it to be done in an afternoon or however much FaceTime they're going to have, limited FaceTime they're going to have. I know reports are even saying they could possibly meet for a second day if negotiations are going well. But yeah, this is going to be the beginning of something. 
Another interesting thing that came out of the press briefing that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had, he said that he he hopes to create a document that Congress can sign to guarantee the future of whatever they come to in the summit. He mentioned yesterday during his briefing that he's hoping they can produce some sort of document, the administration, that Congress would sign that would guarantee future administrations can't undo the work that President Trump and this administration have done to help settle some sort of negotiation. It's unclear exactly what that would entail, given it's very unclear what they're expecting to happen out of this summit. I think a lot more will be much more clear after seeing what happens on Tuesday morning in Singapore. But they have made several statements and to point to not wanting to undo what this administration is trying to do with North Korea, as we've seen several presidents, including President Trump, do with past administration policies. Right. He doesn't want somebody to come in and undo his Iran nuclear deal after after it gets done. Um, (laughs) Exactly. Where are they going to be meeting for the summit on Tuesday? They announced recently Sarah Sanders announced that it'll the preliminary meeting is expected to go at 9 a.m. in Singapore on Tuesday, which is 9 p.m. Eastern time on Monday night. So that's where it's going to take place. It's kind of a great location for both leaders. We've seen, like we said, we've had Mike Pompeo go to North Korea and Kim Jong-un has gone to China before, but hasn't really traveled much farther. So it's kind of a great place for both to meet. It's foreign turf. They're not on they're not in the U.S. or in North Korea, where it might seem there's a home turf advantage type of thing. So that's where everything's going to play out on Tuesday. Do we know how much FaceTime they're going to be having? It's not entirely clear exactly how many meetings there will be. Like I said, there's that one preliminary meeting at 9 a.m. that's expected. From what I've been told there, I think everything's kind of flexible right now. They expect that if meetings go over, like you mentioned before, they could go into another day. So there's not really a lot of details on FaceTime, but I expect they'll they'll probably be behind closed doors for most of the meetings that we're going to see. All right. Exciting times. Elena Treen, associate news editor and reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we need to be very careful with artificial intelligence just to make sure that we don't do something very foolish. I mean, with artificial intelligence, we are summoning the demon. You know all those stories where there's the guy with the pentagram and the holy water, and he's like, yeah, you sure you can control the demon? <laughs> Didn't work out. Joining us now is Ryan Whitwam. He's a science and tech journalist at ExtremeTech.com. So we're going to talk about this interesting thing that the team at MIT did. They got an artificial intelligence and they fed it a bunch of information, and now it only thinks about murder. What did the MIT team do? <laughs> right, so uh, most most of the time when uh, people are trying to create uh, an artificial intelligence, they want it to be useful. They want it to do something you know, that is helpful to humans. Uh, that, was, that was very much not the goal here. The entire point of this experiment was to explore what happens if you feed a neural network incredibly biased data. So in this case, the AI they created, they named it Norman, of course, after Norman Bates, because it's a psychopath. They, they call it a psychopathic AI. So uh, instead of feeding it a variety of images to teach it how to identify what's in an image, they only fed it data that they collected from a, an unnamed subreddit that contains exclusively pictures of violence and death. Great. Reddit. <laughs> right. Every, is something yeah, so anybody anybody else can get to get their hands on. Right. So they, they trained this neural network on all of this, this awful stuff. And then they showed 
Norman and a, a quote unquote regular AI that, that was intended to do a similar thing, inkblots. You know, they, they conducted a, a Rorschach test. And Norman sees very unpleasant things in inkblots, uh, whereas the normal AI might look at an inkblot and say, those are, you know, flowers in a vase. Norman says that's a guy being shot in the head. Yeah, I think one of my favorites was a black and white photo of a small bird, is what the normal person would say. The Norman AI says, man gets pulled into a dough machine. <laughs> it's a, And it's just, you know, big splotch of, it, it vaguely looks like a human, I guess you could say. Right. Um, I mean, if you look at the, the ink plots, like some of them, you can, you can see like, oh, yeah, I can see how right. the, the standard AI would think that that's what it is. Uh, and, and obviously, like, I think the, the interesting thing here is, is not just that the captions are like really violent and upsetting, but they don't look anything like that. Um, it, it, it sort of it shows you that you get out of an, uh, an AI what you put in. So I think a lot of people, when they, they see the headlines about this, they think, oh, they're trying to make some point about, you know, exposure to violence or you know, the danger of like AI, like a robot apocalypse thing or something. But this is really about about bias in data. Because we're counting on on these AI systems to do so many things for us in the future. And you have to wonder, if you don't use neutral and effective data to train them, what you're getting out might not be fair to everybody that uses these AIs. Right. It, it was specifically formed to address one of everybody's biggest science fiction fears, how an AI becomes Skynet and then wants to destroy us. But it, like you said, it's really about feeding enough bad images. It's going to be bad. It's going to pull out bad things. Right. Real quick, another uh, one of my favorite ones, and this one is very specific. A black and white photo of a baseball glove is what the normal AI sees. Norman says, a man is murdered by machine gun in broad daylight. So it's just these weird, very specific things. You did mention that it is a neural network, and uh, maybe a lot of people aren't familiar with that. What is a neural network? How do those work? So uh, a neural network, it's just, it's a system that is based loosely on a, a biological model of a brain. So instead of uh, developing a program and telling it exactly what to do, you have a system of, of basically nodes that conduct uh, mathematical analysis on data. So you have a layer that you add data, and then you have a bunch of nodes in the middle that process the data. They assign weights. And if it gets to a certain point, then they, they feed forward into further nodes. And at the end, you get an output. And hopefully the output that you get, it matches the data that you put in. So if you show an AI one of these images, the data that you get out, you want it to be accurate. You want it to be what is actually in the image. So like, uh, like Google in Google Photos, they, have, uh, they use neural networks to catalog what's in your photos. So if you search in Google Photos for a dog, you want to see the photos that have dogs in them. You don't want to see the photos that have trees. So they trained, you know, they train it with all sorts of data and it, it's good at doing those things. Um, but if you train a neural network with data that isn't very good, then it's not going to be able to output data that matches what you put in. We're nowhere near the point of creating an AI that we see in a lot of movies, uh, something with a consciousness or something like that. But, uh, you know, a lot of things that we have been seeing is, uh, let's say, a Google Assistant, their AI they just had a presentation not too long ago where they have this creepy voice that can call and make a restaurant reservation for you. What do you think is the near future of AI? I don't even want to say long term. What's, what's, what are we going to see in the next few years with artificial intelligence? I think that we're, we're probably going to see a lot of things happen with the virtual assistants like Google Assistant and to a lesser extent, uh, Apple's Siri. 
Um, Apple is really just starting to invest in, in machine learning and AI now. But in the next couple of years, I think we're going to find that these things that we talk to on our phones and in like smart speakers throughout the house, they're going to be a lot better at doing things. They'll be able to understand the way you, you phrase things. I mean, one of the real advantages with these technologies is that an engineer doesn't have to go in and say, if the user says this, do this thing. They just, over time, they, they train the networks to understand context. You can phrase your command in different ways and it'll still understand. And in the next couple of years, I think that's going to become much more obvious that you'll just be able to sort of, you know, uh, throw out a command to, to your smart speaker without thinking like, how do I need to say this for the, the computer to understand me? Yeah, the big effort is just to make our lives a little easier. Ryan Whitwam, science and tech journalist for ExtremeTech.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, that's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.